Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you are watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. And today we are in our 14th and final in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. And what we're going to do today is wrap up what we've learned, summarize it and review it, and fit it in to the big picture. So we've really dealt with two fundamental principles that should have caused us to really rethink what the antioxidant system is. So first of all, we looked at the big picture of physiological and pathological roles of oxidants. We saw that it's not good versus bad of oxidants being bad and the antioxidants being good and coming to fight them. It's about context. It's about how oxidants can have physiological health-promoting roles if they're produced in a proper amount and context, and those can include roles in thyroid hormone metabolism, in immunity to infectious diseases, in regulating energy metabolism, but they can also have pathological roles, disease-producing roles, if they're overproduced or produced in the wrong context. And by context, we mean the where and the when of their accumulation. And the antioxidant system we saw is designed not to stop them in their tracks, but to prevent their pathological roles and promote their physiological roles and that in itself should be a major revision of our understanding of what antioxidants are all about. The second thing that we should have rethought throughout this series is what is an antioxidant? Historically, we've thought of antioxidants as these things that we can put in a test tube and we can watch them neutralize the free radical. And to this day, in the popular imagination, we still think about them that way. But in fact, the antioxidant network is a rich network of many different components that require nourishment from so many different aspects of our diet. And what that means is that there are so many factors that we really need to be thinking not about delivering more antioxidants to the system to combat oxidative stress, but to look at in this person, looking at them holistically across their diet and lifestyle and the markers of their metabolism and nutrient status, whether that's you, me, or, some, or a friend, a family member, someone we're treating in a clinical practice, what in that big picture looks like it's missing because whatever is, is the weakest link is going to be the thing that's going to have the biggest payoff. And when we looked at this network, we saw that vitamin E needs to be recycled by vitamin C, which needs to be recycled by glutathione. When we talked about vitamin E, we talked about the importance of looking at the vitamin E to PUFA ratio in foods because its principal role in the body is to prevent lipid peroxidation, a process that occurs exclusively in the conditions of the human body to polyunsaturated fatty acids because of their 
unique vulnerability lipid peroxidation. And we saw that when you correct for the PUFA content in foods, then grass-fed butter and olive oil are very good sources of vitamin E, not quite as good as palm oil, but sources like corn oil that are very rich in their total vitamin E content aren't better than grass-fed butter or olive oil when you consider the ratio. And even wheat germ oil, which is famous for its vitamin E content, is not as good a source as palm oil is. Nevertheless, we have to remember that vitamin E's role is to form one lipid peroxide and thereby avert the accumulation of many lipid peroxides in the lipid peroxidation chain reaction. And that the lipid peroxide can never be returned to an original intact PUFA. It can only at best be metabolized to hydroxy fatty acids. And when we talked about LDL oxidation and its role in heart disease, we talked about oxidized LDL promoting the conversion of monocytes to macrophages to foam cells and contributing to the degradation of the fibrous cap and eventually its rupture, contributing to the start to the, through to the end of heart disease. And scientists have identified the key components of the oxidized LDL particle that promote those processes as hydroxy fatty acids derived from linoleic acid in vegetable oils. And so what that means is that although the vitamin E to PUFA ratio is critical because vitamin E is what helps prevent the formation of many lipid peroxides, it doesn't prevent the initiation of a peroxidation event. So when a reactive oxygen species meets the cell membrane, to the extent that there are PUFAs there, the more PUFAs there are, the more likely that first lipid peroxyl radical is to form. And if that happens, the best you can get is these hydroxy fatty acids that are not harmless. So you could make a case that in addition to the vitamin E to PUFA ratio, it's still desirable to not consume any more PUFAs than you need to meet your basic requirements for essential fatty acids because as you consume more, you increase the likelihood, even with vitamin E, that you will get hydroxy fatty acid formation or lipid peroxides. So when we look at those sources of vitamin E, we may then say that actually palm oil and grass-fed butter stand out as the best on the list because they not only have good vitamin E to PUFA ratios, but they also have a low content of total PUFA as well. When we talked about vitamin C, which recycles vitamin E, we talked about the importance of fresh fruits and vegetables and how even organ meats can be an important source of vitamin C, especially in people who are not consuming many plant foods. We talked about the need for glutathione to recycle vitamin C, and we saw that there are so many things that impact glutathione status. We need protein to provide glutamate and the sulfur amino acids. If you meet your total protein requirement, you don't have to eat animal proteins, 
but animal proteins contain twice as many sulfur amino acids as plant proteins do. We talked about bone broth and its ability to provide glycine for glutathione synthesis. We talked about whey proteins found in milk, especially in raw milk or in whey protein supplements that in their undenatured state provide gamma glutamyl cysteine. This can overcome any kind of metabolic problems associated with the lack of stimulus for the first step in glutathione synthesis. We talked about getting glutathione from foods, and we said that the lean portions of meat, as well as the lean portions of fruits and vegetables, and so especially low-starch, low-fat vegetables, like cruciferous vegetables, asparagus, and many others, are good sources of intact glutathione that to some degree can be absorbed in foods. But we also talked about the need for polyphenols across fruits and vegetables to provide the stimulus to synthesize not only glutathione, but all aspects of the antioxidant system and the system that supports xenobiotic metabolism and other responses to stress. And we saw that this was through the principle of hormesis, which means that they're actually acting as pro-oxidants. And so even though these traditional things that we've thought of as the antioxidants do have an antioxidant effect, even they have it through the opposite mechanism that we've conventionally thought they do. So how wrong could our traditional understanding of the antioxidant system be in that sense? And we had talked about the ability to eat a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables and provide a lot of that stimulus, or maybe even use supplements designed for that purpose. But we also talked about the fact that you can't just expect more and more and more of those compounds to be the solution because what they do is upregulate your defenses. And so you still need the raw materials like the protein and the whey protein specifically and the glycine and so on and so forth. And even foods that have starch like potatoes, they're not that rich in glutathione because the starch is displacing the parts of the tissues that would be rich in glutathione. But insulin provided by the carbohydrate supports glutathione synthesis. We saw that we need ATP to synthesize glutathione, and everything that requires ATP requires magnesium. And ATP synthesis requires the B vitamins, thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, and pantothenic acid. We saw the pentose phosphate pathway as being incredibly important because the recycling of glutathione is also supported by energy metabolism through that pathway. And we saw that glucose is providing the reducing power that's transferred to glutathione using the help of niacin in the form of NADPH and riboflavin, a key prosthetic group of the glutathione reductase enzyme. And we saw that making that NADPH requires an enzyme called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase that's the single most common enzymatic defect in the entire world, affecting 400 million people worldwide, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, and 3-7% of Americans, especially African Americans, where its prevalence can reach 11%. And we talked about the enzyme transketolase being required, which 
There are defects in that are very poorly understood and best known in the context of contributing to Wernicke's encephalopathy. And we talked about the need for thiamine. Glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase helps take glucose and bring it into the pentose phosphate pathway. Transketolase and thiamine help return the pentose phosphates to glycolysis, operating as that shunt over and over again is what allows us to get that NADPH for glutathione recycling. When we talked about the B vitamins, we talked about how abundant they are in most foods, how if we eat a diversity of animal and plant foods, we're going to be getting a lot of them. And even refined foods nowadays are enriched with them to prevent their well-known deficiencies that were common in previous eras of history. But we also talked about numerous considerations for thiamine that aren't even about the thiamine content of the foods you eat. We talked about heat and processing being very destructive. We talked about thiaminases in raw fish or produced by bacteria in the human intestine or algae in the environment or larvae in some traditional foods having anti-thiamine effects that can overcome a diet that has adequate thiamine status and can produce really nasty effects when the diet is low in thiamine. We also talked about the fact that carbohydrate requires twice as much thiamine as fat when we burn it for energy, so we need more thiamine if we're eating a high carbohydrate diet. We talked about riboflavin being very sensitive to light, and commercially we've adapted to that, but when you ferment your kefir, do you leave it on the counter, and if you do, do you wrap it up in a towel? Does your farmer protect the milk? when she or he brings it to the farmer's market? These are very important considerations for riboflavin. When we talked about niacin, we talked about the importance of having protein, vitamin B6, and iron in the diet to make our own niacin. And we talked about how historically, lack of diversity in the diet can be a cause of niacin deficiency. And the greatest historical example is over-reliance on corn that was not properly processed in traditional ways. Now, we didn't talk that much about the antioxidant minerals in this series, so let's give that a little attention now. We saw that when we first produce reactive oxygen species, we need to use manganese in the mitochondria or copper and zinc in the cytosol to convert superoxide to hydrogen peroxide, and then we need to either use glutathione peroxidase or catalase to convert it to water. Glutathione peroxidase is dependent on glutathione again, that needs recycling with NADPH and that needs ATP for its synthesis, and selenium, an essential mineral, and catalase is dependent on iron. Now, unlike glutathione here, which is ultimately deriving its electrons from glucose through the pentose phosphate pathway, these other enzymes actually operate by taking the electrons from the oxidants that they're neutralizing. So for example, superoxide dismutase. This superoxide is oxygen that has just picked up an electron, and it's saying, oh, I got an extra electron, what do I do with it? What do I do with it? And that's what makes it so dangerous. Superoxide dismutase says, hey, you, get over here. Give me your electron. It takes it off. Now it's just oxygen. And it's like, oh, so glad that I can leave. Like, everything's fine now. Superoxide, that superoxide has become oxygen and it just goes away happy. Superoxide dismutase takes that electron and it takes a 
different superoxide, adds it to it, and makes it become hydrogen peroxide. Catalase does basically the same thing. It takes one hydrogen peroxide, strips off its electrons, donates them to another hydrogen peroxide. The first one became oxygen, the second one became two molecules of water. So we're not tracing these electrons back to glucose, but we still need to trace the enzymatic activity back to the essential minerals that we need in the diet for these enzymes to work. If we look at selenium, the best sources are organ meats and seafood. And among plants, Brazil nuts really stand out. However, soil and environmental content of selenium is so variable that it can be very misleading to look at your diet. Animal foods vary two to five-fold in their selenium content, and plant foods vary 10 to 20-fold. So it's really important to consider where you live, especially if you eat local foods, and it's really important to measure your selenium status if there's any case that you might be deficient or toxic. Zinc is most abundant in oysters, beef, the livers of most animals, and cheese. Overall, most animal foods are much richer in zinc than most plant foods. An exception of that is milk, and cheese is so rich in zinc because it concentrates the fraction of milk that has all the zinc. There are some exceptions to this. For example, pumpkin seeds, which I didn't put on this table, are actually richer in zinc than beef is. However, zinc is much more bioavailable, two to five times more bioavailable from animal foods than from plant foods. And that's because protein, especially the amino acids that are rich in animal protein, promotes zinc absorption, but phytate, which is very rich in a variety of plant foods, particularly in seeds, by which I mean a taxonomical seed, and that includes seeds, legumes, nuts, and grains, is the principal inhibitor of zinc absorption. In fact, the main determinant of how much zinc you can absorb from your food is the zinc to phytate ratio. So that makes animal foods really important to the antioxidant defense system. But magnesium is really important as well. Magnesium is necessary for the production of every protein in the body and every utilization of ATP, such as in glutathione synthesis. And if you look at magnesium, then most of the richest foods in magnesium are plant foods. And even liver, which is an excellent source of most nutrients, is not a very good source of magnesium. So a diet rich in unrefined plant foods is the most reliable way to eat a lot of magnesium. The most reliable way to get a magnesium deficiency would be to take a hamburger and put it between two buns made from enriched white flour and put on the side a sugary drink. Manganese is abundant in whole grains, legumes, nuts, tea, and coffee. Again, something that is much richer in plant foods than animal foods Vegetarians tend to have twice the manganese intake as omnivores do. The best sources of iron are clams, liver, and red meat. Just like zinc, it's going to be much richer in animal foods than plant foods. And just like zinc, there's a lot of exceptions to that rule in the sense that legumes, leafy greens, seaweed, potatoes, there are many plant sources that are rich in iron. However, iron absorption from animal foods is two to seven times greater than iron absorption from plant foods. 
Iron, out of all of these minerals, is the most likely to cause overload simply because there are very common genetic mutations that interfere with our ability to control how much iron we absorb from food. And so it's really important to measure your iron status because side by side in our society, we have many people who are anemic and many people who are suffering from iron overload. The best way to deal with iron overload is to give blood. So let's put this all together. If we look at a lipid peroxyl radical that's neutralized in the cell membrane, vitamin E does that. But really, the electron comes from glucose. Then it goes to niacin. Then it goes to riboflavin. Then it goes to glutathione. We only have that glutathione there because we have ATP, and we have magnesium, and we have protein. We have our sulfur amino acids. We have our glycine. We have our insulin. We have our polyphenols. And then glutathione gives it to vitamin C, and vitamin C gives it to vitamin E, and vitamin E then neutralizes that lipid peroxyl radical. Or maybe glutathione gave it to selenium, and selenium gave it to a lipid peroxide to neutralize it to a hydroxy fatty acid. Or maybe selenium gave it to hydrogen peroxide to neutralize it to water. And then we want to minimize the likelihood that we need to use this system of damage control by effectively neutralizing reactive oxygen species that don't belong there. And we do that with the help of all the antioxidant minerals, whether it's manganese, copper, zinc, selenium, or iron. Nourishing this system requires protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Carbohydrate is the main supplier of glucose, although we can make it from protein when we're depriving ourselves of glucose. But even still, the insulin from carbohydrates helps support glutathione synthesis. But without fat, we're not going to absorb our fat-soluble vitamins well, and that includes vitamin E. And without protein, not only can we not make glutathione, but we can't make any of these enzymes that are also proteins as well. So supporting the antioxidant system is really about nourishing the whole thing with a broad diversity of unrefined foods from all these different categories, focusing on nutrient density, and... If we see oxidative stress in ourselves or someone else and we want to fix it, we really need to look at the thing that is most likely to be missing because that's where we're going to get the biggest payoff. And if multiple things are missing, we're going to have to fix all of them in order to truly fix the system, not just one of them. Now, the purpose of this series was to, in a coherent fashion, lay down the basic principles of how the system works. The purpose was not to take any of the individual components and look at them in great detail. If you want something like that, I would encourage you to listen to my podcast, Mastering Nutrition. You can find my podcast at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast, or you can just search for my name or for Mastering Nutrition in your favorite podcast app. On the podcast, you'll find interviews and you'll find special topics but you also find a series on managing nutritional status. It starts with what makes a good marker of nutritional status at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash marker. And here you can find links to all the other episodes in the series. Each episode is a deep dive into a particular nutrient, why it's important, and how we can understand its biochemical and physiological roles to understand what is the best way to measure nutritional status 
and to manage nutritional status, to know whether we need to deal with it in the first place and how do we apply our, our knowledge of it to the practical question of what to do. You can find in this series why you should manage your glutathione status and how to do it, why you need to manage your iron status and how to do it, why you should measure your copper status and how to do it, why you should manage your selenium status and how to do it, why you should manage your zinc status and how to do it. And the series just goes on and on and on. Now that we've come to the end of the series, I just have one thing to ask you. Many people have asked me to offer classes that you would pay for to get more depth that is more useful for professional purposes. I don't know whether I want to do that. I'm loving offering these free classes, but if that's something you want from me, please email me at chris at chrismasterjohnphd.com and explain to me two things. Number one, what would you want to get out of those classes that goes beyond what you're getting out of these? And number two, why would you want to take those classes with me versus the many other options that you could have for taking classes about nutrition? I don't know whether I'm going to do something like that, but I might. And I need to be convinced that it's something that you really want and it's something that's worth doing. Regardless of whether I wind up doing something like that, I'm going to continue making lessons like these for free. All right, I hope you enjoyed this series. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and this series is all done. I hope to see you in the next one.